Brothers and sisters, let's stand together for the reading of God's Word. We'll focus on Acts chapter 12, verses 1 through 4. The title of the sermon is The Way of the Cross. I'll read from verse 27 of chapter 11 through until verse 10 of chapter 12. Please listen carefully because this is God's holy and infallible Word. And in these days, prophets came from Jerusalem to Antioch. Then one of them, named Agabus, stood up and showed by the Spirit that there was going to be a great famine throughout all the world, which also happened in the days of Claudius Caesar. Then the disciples, each according to his ability, determined to send relief to the brethren dwelling in Judea. This they also did, and sent it to the elders by the hands of Barnabas and Saul. Now about that time, Herod the king stretched out his hand to harass some from the church. Then he killed James the brother of John with the sword. And because he saw that it pleased the Jews, he proceeded further to seize Peter also. Now, it was during the days of unleavened bread. So when he had arrested him, he put him in prison and delivered him to four squads of soldiers to keep him intending to bring him before the people after Passover. Peter was therefore kept in prison, but constant prayer was offered to God for him by the church. And when Herod was about to bring him out, that night Peter was sleeping, bound with two chains between two soldiers, and the guards before the door were keeping the prison. Now behold, an angel of the Lord stood by him, and a light shone in the prison, and he struck Peter on the side and raised him up, saying, Arise quickly. And his chains fell off his hands. Then the angel said to him, Gird yourself and tie on your sandals. And so he did. And he said to him, Put on your garment and follow him, and follow me. So he went out and followed him, and did not know that what was done by the angel was real, but thought he was seeing a vision. When they were past the first and the second guard posts, they came to the iron gate that leads to the city, which opened to them of its own accord. And they went out and went down one street, and immediately the angel departed from him. And thus ends the reading of God's word. Amen. 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 Please be seated. Eight days before his glorious mountaintop transfiguration back in Luke chapter 9 Jesus said the son of man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and be raised the third day then Jesus said to them all if anyone desires to come if anyone desires to come after me let him deny himself and take up his cross Daily and follow me. For whoever desires to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. For what profit is it to a man if he gains the whole world and is himself destroyed or lost? For whoever is ashamed of me and my words of him, the Son of Man, will be ashamed when he comes in his own glory and in his father's and of the holy angels. So who did Jesus take with him to the mountaintop? Peter, James, and John. 
Surely Jesus our Lord knew what they would each face along their individual path of service and love toward Him. The paths were different. He warned them of suffering and then He showed them His glory. Teaching them ahead of time that He is worthy. He is worthy, brothers and sisters. He is worthy. And the one goal of today's sermon is for us all, each of us, to interpret our own way of the cross. You have a, you have a path of the cross. And the purpose of today's sermon is that each of us would interpret our own way of the cross in light of Christ's glory. And agree together with all the voices of heaven once again. As John, the brother of James, martyred James, experienced in his vision. John, writing, Then I looked, and I heard the voice of many angels around the throne, the living creatures and the elders, and the number of them was ten thousand times ten thousand, and thousands of thousands, saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and riches and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and blessing. That this would be our heartbeat. This would be the air we breathe. That we would fix our attention upon Christ and find Him to be worthy. And that we would live lives that reflect our faith in who He is and His great glory that He is our matchless Savior and King. First we'll look at the setting in verse 1. And we'll talk some about Herod the King. Who is this Herod? If you're like me, it's easy to get him confused. And I'll describe all the Herods today and I'm sure the next time I'll describe them again and probably have a hard time remembering that time also. We'll look at Herod's abuse of his political power unto Christian persecution in verse 1. And we'll look at Herod killing James, the brother of John, in verse 2. We'll talk about how the Jews were pleased with this, with James's murder, in verse 3, the first part of verse 3. And then we'll look at Herod's imprisonment of Peter in verses 3 and 4. And as usual, we'll seek to, by God's grace, learn these principles and how they apply in our own lives today. So first the setting. The text says, Now about that time, Herod the king stretched out his hand to harass some from the church. So Luke teaches us when this occurred, about that time, is linked back to what we read in chapter 11, verses 25 through 30. That's the one-year teaching of Saul and Barnabas in Antioch. Remember, Barnabas went and got Saul and brought him back, and they were there for about a year teaching a lot of people in Antioch. And then in that year, sometime during that year, prophets came from Jerusalem, and one of them, Agabus, told about the famine, and they decided to send relief via the hand of Saul and Barnabas to all of the church throughout Judea and especially Jerusalem. I'll read that text for us again, because it's important to kind of see the context of what today is happening in today's text, and it's happening around all the same time. Barnabas departed for Tarsus to seek Saul, And when he had found him, he brought him to Antioch. So it was that for a whole year they assembled with the church and taught a great many people. 
And the disciples were first called Christians in Antioch. And in these days, prophets came from Jerusalem to Antioch. Then one of them, named Agabus, stood up and showed by the Spirit that there was going to be a great famine throughout all the world, which also happened in the days of Claudius Caesar. Then the disciples, each according to his ability, determined to send relief to the brethren dwelling in Judea. This they also did and sent it to the elders by the hands of Barnabas and Saul. So the church in Judea and Jerusalem is facing this famine that's coming, and it was a time that they would have been praying about that and concerned about that, that external threat to their well-being. Well, simultaneously, persecution is turning up. Persecution is heating up. Famine, persecution. The church is being squeezed at this time. Let's look at Herod the king. text says, Now about that time Herod the king stretched out his hand to harass some from the church. So who is this Herod the king? Well, he is Herod Agrippa the first. Okay, and that's how I'm going to reference him a lot of times during the sermon today, just to keep him straight in our mind from the other Herods that have been involved in the story in the New Testament. So Herod the king, Herod Agrippa the first, is the grandson of Herod the Great and the nephew of Herod Antipas. We will encounter the son of Herod Agrippa I in Acts 25 as King Agrippa. So there's four Herods in the New Testament for us to keep track of. Okay, four of them. We're going to go through them a little bit. Herod I, that's what history, how history refers to him. Herod I is known as Herod the Great in Matthew chapter 2, verse 1. And then Herod Antipas is his son, the son of Herod the first, and he had John the Baptist executed. That's in Matthew chapter 14. So, so far, it's pretty clear. Herod the first, and his son, and not Herod the second, is Herod Antipas. Okay? And then, the third one that we're looking at here today is Herod Agrippa the first, the grandson of Herod the first. You'll note he's not the son of Herod Antipas. Okay? Herod Antipas is his uncle. Let's go through this. Herod the Great is called Herod the First, and he's involved in the events surrounding the birth of Christ. So when you think of Herod the Great or Herod the First, think of the events surrounding the birth of Christ. Good guy or bad guy? Bad guy. Okay? Next, Herod Antipas. He is the son of Herod the Great, receives the throne from him. He's involved in the events surrounding John the Baptist. Good guy or bad guy? Bad guy. All right? Next, there's today's Herod, Herod the king, and he's the grandson of Herod the Great, the first bad guy, and he's the nephew of Herod Antipas that we've looked at, the second bad guy, and he is called Herod Agrippa I. And so, question, good guy or bad guy? Bad guy. We're getting a theme here, aren't we? Okay. Now, then we see King Agrippa. Now, he's the son of today's texts, Herod the king. And we'll get to him later in the book of Acts. Um, and it appears as though maybe there was some sort of tempering influence in his life by then. You know, if your dad is killed by worms, that might get your attention. So he's involved in the events surrounding Paul's imprisonment later in the book of Acts. So those are the four Herods, Okay. So when you're reading the New Testament, you're going to see four Herods you're going to bump into. First one, Herod the first, Herod the Great, earliest. Next, Herod Antipas, the events of 
John the Baptist, the uncle of the third Herod, which, is, which we've seen today, Herod Agrippa I, and he's a bad guy too, involved with today's events that we look at with the murder of James and the persecution of Peter. And then later, we'll look at Herod Agrippa II, called King Agrippa. All right, so if you can keep that in your mind, it will help things flow as you're reading the New Testament. What do we see here? The Herodian line is marked by these continual events of political intrigue. So, if, you know, reading for this, you go and you read about Herod the Great and how he got his power, and his son, how he got his power expanded, and then, you know, how the third guy got his... And it's all this political intrigue back and forth with the Jews and with the Romans and marrying and, and just a lot of political intrigue to get power. And so it's based on their connections with the Roman Empire with close ties to multiple Roman emperors. In addition, this line stands out in its willingness to employ whatever means are necessary to remain in power. That should really get your attention. Pretty limitless in what they were willing to do in order to remain in power and to get more power. Engaging in activities to gain favor with Rome and with the Jewish leadership. Those were their kind of two places they had to keep people happy. We need to recall the prayers lifted up in Acts chapter 4, and we need to maintain our Psalm 2 grid of understanding these events and understanding the world in which we live. The line of the Herodians stand out before us as an example of evil leadership standing against Christ. And they weren't the first, and they're not the last. Remember Acts 4.26, a part of their prayer, quoting Psalm 2, The kings of the earth took their stand, and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his Christ. And we see this. This is what Herod did, Herod of today's text. He abused his power by persecuting Christians. He set himself against Christ, against the Lord's anointed one. The text again says, Now about that time Herod the king stretched out his hand to harass some from the church. So instead of using his authority the way good rulers are supposed to for justice, to establish peace in the society, Herod Agrippa I uses his political power, that is, he stretched out his hand to what end? To persecute Christians. Not all Christians, but only some from the church. Now, part of what we're going to see today is a process with this particular political ruler. He goes from bad to worse. And what we need to see principle-wise is that unbelieving political rulers are vulnerable to this process and our default setting in understanding them is to look at them as a threat to the well-being of Christ's church even if they haven't become a threat yet. That's, that's the principle we see. Instead of our Pollyanna default setting, oh, they'd never do that. Oh, that's a conspiracy theory. We need to understand the reality that the scriptures teach us about our political rulers. If they are unbelieving and do not bow the knee to Christ, they are a threat to his church. If not then... They need to be understood to be vulnerable. This word harass shows us the attitude he has. 
It is to oppress, to afflict, to harm, to maltreat, to vex. He has taken on at this point in time a purpose which is to harm and trouble Christians. That's what his purpose is. Didn't happen by accident. It wasn't just an unintended consequence of his leadership. He's a villain. He's motivated by malice towards Christ's church from the start. You see this, okay? We are given two specific examples in the verses that follow. But Herod Agrippa I may also have engaged in other forms of persecution against other leaders in the church. He probably did. You see So it starts small, and it leads to murder, maybe in private with James, and and likely an intended public murder of Peter. These are examples of unbelieving political leaders, unrestrained, and what happens to them, what can happen to them as they become persecutors. Focused, unbalanced applications. What, What are the tools available Focused, unbalanced applications of judicial scrutiny, unfair applications of regulations and policing. This is what we call a two-tier justice system. There's fees and fines and subpoenas and other threats that can be laid out there. These are all in the tyrant's toolbox. And so when you see these types of things occurring, don't be so foolish as to think, Oh, it's just innocent. Maybe it is, but don't assume that. Commentary says, He began with vexing them only or afflicting them, imprisoning them, fining them, spoiling their houses and goods and other ways molesting them. But afterwards, He proceeded to greater instances of cruelty. Christ's suffering servants are thus trained up by less troubles for greater, that tribulation may work patience and patience experience. So it's likely that they were experiencing these kind of persecution introductions, feeling their pocketbooks, feeling the threats of a failing banking system, things like this. Now today we will often hear it termed as a two-tiered justice system. And one example of this is recent arrests, multiple arrests of pro-life activists, while violent Violent, destructive attacks on pro-life pregnancy centers are almost entirely ignored. So these things that were happening to the church then, we see similar types of things happening to the church today. The example I gave is a targeted attack upon Christians. So what are the principles here that we need to learn? Ungodly rulers will use their powers to attack Christians using the laws that are on the books. Under the color of law. And unrestrained, if left unrestrained by God, so we can see God has taken his hand off of this Herod, and he's being led along by his sin, perhaps by demonic influence as well. This is what ungodly rulers will do if left unrestrained. This is the process, brothers and sisters, that we should expect them to go through. You are not a conspiracy theorist to have this as your default setting for understanding ungodly political rulers. Now, 
You have to be careful. You can't assume that's the motive of every one of them. But they need to prove it's not. The burden of proof from a biblical perspective rests upon them. And therefore, we should not be surprised by this when it happens. We shouldn't be surprised by these efforts to marginalize and mock this biblical principle. Oh, we don't want to be conspiracy theorists. You've heard it a thousand times. Psalm 2 specifically teaches us that there will be, there was and there will be vain international conspiracies specifically set up against Christ and his righteous ways. That's an overarching theme for understanding history. And history is not over yet. So we are gullible fools if we blindly grant trust to our political rulers. To all of them, just carte blanche. We are blind fools if we think that the government is just some entity to be trusted. We are, and that's true of any organization. We are blind fools if we think that. Next, Herod, the unrestrained process gets worse. He killed James, the brother of John, with the sword. Killed James, the brother of John, with the sword. So he's progressed now from harassing some with the law, and he's gone on to killing James with the sword. Violence and malice progress in his hands and heart. And it is wise to see when we observe what is happening in this man's life. It is wise to see and understand what happens amongst those whose hearts and minds are not under the restraint of God, either in his common grace or even better, via being regenerate, being believers in Christ. We've heard the joke. Don't go up there and drink the water. It's been seen so many times. Maybe Herod Agrippa I was an okay guy before he got all this power, before he had an opportunity to be misled. So this should inform our voting. Well, I don't mind voting for an unbeliever. Well, then you are a fool. You are a fool to give the sword to an unbeliever. Maybe they have been great right here and right now, but when they get into that position of power, this is what we need to expect will happen to them. God may keep it from happening. God may restrain it. We don't do foolish things just expecting that maybe God will be gracious and keep us from experiencing the negative results. He killed James, the brother of John, with the sword. Think of John. It's a part of our understanding for what we're going to think about in our own lives. Think of John. They had been fishermen together with their father, these brothers, growing up together. And they left everything to follow Jesus together. Imagine John's sadness at hearing of what his brother James went through. And Peter, James, and John were pretty much always together, with some exceptions. They were the three closest to Jesus, so this would have been a crushing blow, not just for John, but for Peter as well. They would have grieved deeply. Listen to these, this long quote from Matthew Henry. 
This who was here crowned with martyrdom was one of the first three of Christ's disciples. One of those that were the witnesses of his transfiguration and agony. Whereby James was prepared for martyrdom. He was one of those whom Christ called Boanerges, sons of thunder. And perhaps by his powerful awakening preaching, he had provoked Herod or those about him as John the Baptist did the other Herod. And maybe that was the occasion of his coming into this trouble. He was one of those sons of Zebedee whom Christ told that they should drink the cup that he was to drink of and be baptized with the baptism that he was to be baptized with. And now those words of Christ were made good in him. But it was in order to his sitting at Christ's right hand. For if we suffer with him, we shall reign with him. He was one of the twelve who were commissioned to disciple all nations. And to take him off now before he had removed from Jerusalem was like Cain's killing Abel when the world was to be peopled. And one man was then more than many at another time. To kill an apostle now was killing he knew not how many. But oh, why would God permit it? If the blood of his saints, much more the blood of apostles, is precious in his eyes. And therefore we may be sure is not shed but upon a valuable consideration. Perhaps God intended hereby to awaken the rest of the apostles to disperse themselves among the nations and not to nestle any longer at Jerusalem. Or it was to show that though the apostles were appointed to plant the gospel in the world, yet if they were taken off, God could do his work without them and would do it. The apostle died a martyr to show the rest of them what they must expect, that they might prepare accordingly. I think it's safe to add to this that James was martyred in this way to teach us as well. What will we learn from him? It is worthwhile to consider how he was killed. The text tells us, so it is worth considering None of us knows the way in which we will pass out of this world. James passed out of the world with a sword coming down upon him. Matthew Henry again. What kind of death he suffered? He was slain with a sword. That is, his head was likely cut off with a sword. Which was looked upon by the Romans to be a more disgraceful way of being beheaded than with an axe. Beheading was not ordinarily used among the Jews, but when kings gave verbal orders for private and sudden executions, this manner of death was used because it was most expeditious. And it is probable that this Herod killed James in the same manner as the other Herod killed John the Baptist, privately in the prison, removing his head. It is strange that we have not a more full and particular account of this martyrdom of this great apostle, like what we had from Stephen, of Stephen. But even this short mention of the thing is sufficient to let us know that the first preachers of the gospel were so well assured of the truth of it that they sealed it with their blood. There was no doubt upon James's mind. And thereby, have encouraged us, if at any time we are called to it, then we too resist unto blood. 
The Old Testament martyrs were slain with a sword. And Christ came not to send peace, but a sword. In preparation for which we must arm ourselves with what sword? With the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. And then we need not fear what the sword of men can do unto us. James had this sure hope. I want us to note, consider this. You know, when you read these stories, you might think, uh, poor James, wow, look at Peter. Don't do that. Note this. The same divine power that will deliver Peter from death and break his chains and open that door and somehow get those guards out of the way, that whole great miracle, that same divine power sustained James' heart and mind as he died by the sword. James was surely comforted and helped by angels just as Peter was. James escaped the prison and chains of this world just as surely as Peter was freed from his prison and chains. James gained at his death as do all of his saints. Paul writes for us, Inspired by God's divine Holy Spirit to live as Christ and to die is gain. It's another thing. He is worthy and to die is gain. He is worthy and to die is gain. To live as Christ and to die is gain. Because He is worthy, your life now is Christ. And because He is worthy, when you die is to gain. What does this do for us, brothers and sisters? It makes us fearless, happy people. Surely James knew of Jesus' glory and grace and lived his life to bring glory to Christ. James knew about the way of the cross, the suffering here in light of the glory of Jesus. He did not believe that Christianity was some prosperity gospel that guaranteed him to be free of being murdered by the enemies of God. He was probably a post-millennialist like us, but he was not a utopian kind of thinker. Brothers and sisters, in this life, we suffer. And I will tell you, it is so critical for us to understand this. And how we suffer, with faith or not, and to what degree of faith, determines the extent to which we are put to use by God to place His enemies under His feet. As James viewed the death sword's brandished glint, surely his heart was focused upon Christ and he was surely crying, worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and riches and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and blessing. Let us look to our brother James for strength and courage, dear brothers and sisters. Let us live daily in the light of Christ to live as Christ. Let us live daily in the light of His glory that we may die happily. Because that moment is coming. And that we may die happily in any circumstance, no matter what it is, basking in that light of Christ's glory like James surely did, like Stephen did. Now, the Jews were pleased with this. They liked the fact that James was murdered. And that pleased Herod. 
to please the Jews. The text says, and because he saw that it pleased the Jews, he proceeded further to seize Peter also. It appears as though there wasn't necessarily any movement from the Jews for Herod to start all this persecution and to kill James. But there came a point in time where they were cheerleaders for Herod's wickedness. Think of it. Herod Agrippa I loved his political power more than human life. Oh, he would never do that. Yes, he would. Yes, he would. You know, when you hear people say, oh, they wouldn't do that. These people are not living in reality. What is the devil's goal? To thwart everything God wants. Right? To thwart all of what God is doing in the earth. It seems reasonable that the devil's goal would be to stand on an empty world a wilderness desert with no fruitfulness and not a single living being and shake his fist in God's face and say, ha! That would make sense. And those who are under the influence of their sin and the demonic elements of this world will act according to that goal. So there's Herod, all caught up in this. Here's a man willing to murder, to imprison, to abuse his political power for his own evil purposes. Why are we surprised today when we encounter political rulers who are similarly motivated and who also are maliciously acting to kill and imprison innocent people for their own selfish political goals? We should not be surprised by that. Now, of course, we don't jump to conclusions. We're not going to be hasty. But it's as if our default setting is to really understand the vicious behavior that can come forth from unrestrained human sin. Commentary says, Observe the Jews made themselves guilty of the blood of James by showing themselves well pleased with it afterward, though they had not excited Herod to do it. There are accessories ex post facto, so an accessory to the crime after the fact. And those will be reckoned with as persecutors who take pleasure in others persecuting, who delight to see good men ill-used and cry, Aha! So we would have it. Or at least they secretly approve of it. For bloody persecutors, when they perceive themselves applauded for that which everyone ought to cry shame upon them for, are encouraged to go on and have their hands strengthened and their hearts hardened and the checks of their own consciences smothered. Nay, it is as strong a temptation to them to do the like as it was here to Herod because he saw it please the Jews. Though he had no reason to fear displeasing them if he did not, as Pilate condemned Christ, yet he hoped to please them by doing it and so to make an interest among them and make amends for displeasing them and something else. Commentary says, Note, those make themselves an easy prey to Satan who make it their business Please, men. And again, this sheds light on how to think as a statesman, how we want our political rulers to think if they're putting their fingers in the air and testing the winds of politics. What is that but seeking to please men? It is dangerous to be a statesman when you think that way because you do make yourself an easy prey to Satan. So what happens is Herod goes on and imprisons Peter It's like, if you will, a a shark that gets one bite 
And then there's blood in the water and then the frenzy that's set off from that. It seems like that's what's happening with this Herod. Because he saw it please the Jews, he proceeded further to seize Peter also. Now it was during the days of unleavened bread, so when he had arrested him, he put him in prison and delivered him to four squads of soldiers to keep him, intending to bring him before the people after Passover. There's no reason to think that his goals were non-murderous. There's no reason to think that his goals were not immediate. But he had to wait. Encouraged by the Jewish support regarding James's murder, Herod's malice blossoms even further. He commands Peter's imprisonment. He's planning what the text says to bring Peter before the people. It appears as though whatever happened to James was in private. So now he's going to show off a little bit. Public with Peter. What does this bringing Peter before the people mean? Likely, likely, this would be to make Peter a public spectacle, just like what was done to Jesus. Commentary says, Herod's design was after Easter to bring him forth unto the people. He would make a spectacle of Peter. Probably he had put James to death privately, which the people had complained of, not because it was an unjust thing to put a man to death without giving him a public hearing, which it is, but because it deprived them of the satisfaction of seeing him executed. And another part of this is what happens in a culture where God's restraining hand is similarly released. This mob mentality, this bloodlust that occurs. Going on to the commentary, and therefore Herod, now he knows their minds, will gratify them with the sight of Peter in bonds, of Peter upon the block, that they may feed their eyes with such a pleasing spectacle. And very ambitious, surely he was, to plead the people who was willing thus to please them. Has anyone here ever read about what happened in France in 1789? There's freedom and equality, right? And brotherhood, right? It was a bloodbath. The reason they made the guillotine because it was the fastest way they could think of to kill a bunch of people. And so that's an example in our modern history of, of what happens along this process. An unrestrained people led by unrestrained leaders. Oh, they would never do that. Go read your history books. Read the scriptures. But God has grace. God has grace. Days of unleavened bread are in place. And they were going to wait until after the Passover. So we need to note the Lord's providence to provide deliverance for Peter via the timing of his arrest. It's another example of God's hand controlling everything, right? Herod's not in charge. The Jews are not in charge. That great feast pointing to our deliverance in Christ pointing to the Messiah, once caused the Jewish leaders to hurry up and kill our Lord. But here delays Peter's public trial. And think of it, what should be a time of rejoicing in their Messiah? So this is a great indictment, a great condemnation upon the Jewish people. What should be a time of rejoicing in the Messiah continues as a time of hating their Messiah and his people. The commentary says about this, it was at the feast of the Passover when they're celebrating the memorial of their typical deliverance 
should have led them to the acceptance of their spiritual deliverance. But instead of this, they, under pretense of zeal for their law, were most violently fighting against it. And in the days of unleavened bread, were most soured and embittered with the old leaven of malice and wickedness. At the Passover, when the Jews came from all parts to Jerusalem to keep the feast, they irritated one another against the Christians and Christianity and were then more violent than at other times. So Herod is holding on to Peter. We're told there's four squads of soldiers. That's a lot of soldiers for one man. 16. So this is another example of futility of the strength of men. It should encourage us. Not all the armies of earth could hold Peter in that prison. Right? So when we see the powers of the world arrayed against us, satellites, NSA, they're listening to me now, hello NSA. <laughs> they are listening, and they can, but they are nothing. Them and their soldiers and their spying I want us to note the swarms of evil in this world with all of its power and all the combined power and ability and spying knowledge of all of history now and forever, they can vainly brandish and they will vainly brandish their power against the people of God. Where will you focus? Where will you focus when you experience this? How will you teach your friends and children to go through these things? Will we focus upon their swords and their soldiers and their vexings and the threats to our bank accounts and our homes and our crops and our animals and our children? Will we focus upon these things? Or will we remember Christ and focus upon Him? Will we remain fixed upon His matchless glory? Brothers and sisters, Meditate upon the cross. His great work. Meditate upon Jesus Christ, His resurrection. Meditate upon His ascension. Think upon Him and His greatness and His glory and His enthronement, which we read about in Revelation 5, that He is worthy and He is alive and He is reigning and He loves you and He is almighty and He is beautiful, and He is worthy of all of our praise. That's it. Isn't it simple? Nothing else will do. He is our cornerstone. Forever and ever. So, a few questions, just quickly, to think through apply these things in our lives. You know, God in His infinite wisdom teaches us so many important things from His Word. All of these things trace back to worshiping Him and considering Him. Look at John's way of the cross, the Apostle John. Think of his way of the cross. His double-pierced heart. The disciple who knew Jesus best. who was granted this great privilege and honor of looking after the mother of Jesus after his Savior died, who stood the closest to the cross, 
of all of the disciples. And then his brother is killed by the sword, his beloved brother, this other son of thunder. Remember what Jesus said to Peter at the end of the book of John? He said to Peter, if I will that John remain till I come, what is that to you? You follow me. And John, it appears, did live a long life. He was on the island of Patmos shortly before A.D. 70, probably A.D. 67-ish, 68, maybe even later, receiving this vision and giving it to the church in time for them to to know what's going on. Uh, I don't know exactly when Revelation was written. I don't want to imply that I do. But he lived a long life. That's a different cross path than his brother John. And he had many sorrows in this life while his brother James is rejoicing amongst the martyrs. What will your path be? Look at James' cross path. He was martyred. John reveals to live as Christ. James reveals to die as gain. What will your life reveal? We don't know, do we? Listen to what James... You have to wonder. It's not mentioned. I can't help but wonder, though, if John in the vision may have seen James amongst the saints. This is commenting on the martyrs who came out of the great tribulation. Therefore they are before the throne of God and serve Him day and night in His temple, and He who sits on the throne will dwell among them. And as you know, I believe this great tribulation took place prior to the destruction of the temple in AD 70. This is all these Christians who were killed in, in the great tribulation. They shall neither hunger anymore nor thirst anymore, and sun shall not strike them nor any heat. For the Lamb who is in the midst of the throne will shepherd them and lead them to living fountains of water, and God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. So that's worth considering. James. But there's also Peter's cross path. History tells us that he was also eventually martyred, but not yet. He is going to be imprisoned And he's going to experience this amazing experience of being delivered by an angel. And to be able to tell that story. That's not true for all of us. We don't know how God is going to put our lives to use. But we know it's going to be a cross like what Jesus bore. And we must remember that to live is Christ and to die is Cain. And always caught up in focusing on him and worshiping. Listen to what Peter says. And he, and who is he who will harm you if you become followers of what is good? This is from 1 Peter chapter 3. But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you are blessed. Do not be afraid of their threats, nor be troubled. But sanctify the Lord God in your hearts. And always be ready to give a defense to everyone who asks you a reason for the hope that is in you with meekness and fear. Note that apologetics emphasized here is in the context of persecution. In the context of encountering those who are resisting the gospel and who are mistreating you. Having a good conscience that when they defame you as evildoers, those who revile your good conduct in Christ may be ashamed. For it is better if it is the will of God to suffer for doing good than for doing evil. He's teaching us about how to deal with being persecuted. How to deal with being mistreated. This is what he learned along his way of the cross. What will yours 
look like? What are the sorrows of your soul that have come through being mistreated because you're a Christian? And even beyond that, what are the sorrows of your soul that have come just from living in this world of sorrow? How will we respond to this? Brothers and sisters, I hope that we will look unto Jesus. That will be the habit of our souls over and over again. That we will look unto Jesus. Listen to the text. That our faith would grow. That we would cling to Him more. That we would worship Him more. That we would praise Him more. Therefore, we also, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and the sin which so easily ensnares us. And let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking unto Jesus, the author and the finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before Him endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. When we fix our eyes on Jesus and we worship Him, and the worthiness of His being captures our being, we will experience all of the attendant beautiful fruits of that. Gratitude, humility, joy, courage, perseverance, hope unassailable, praise, worship, restored relationships, love, unselfishness, And as we look at Him and we consider what He endured, what have we endured? When we look at Him and see how God honored Him through His humiliation into His exaltation, we see where our way of the cross will go. Whatever sorrows we face, whatever persecutions we face, we know that we are in Christ. And even now we are seated with Him. But... There's coming a day where, like James, we'll be freed from the prison of our own sin and the prison of this world that shackles us in so many ways and brought into the one eternal blessed hope. We shall be perfected and we shall see Him face to face. And we can know everything we go through that that is our final destination. Amen? Amen. Let us pray. Almighty and gracious Heavenly Father, Lord, we acknowledge that because of our weak faith and our sin, we are so prone to not look to Jesus, but to look to other things, to look to ourselves, to look to others, to look to our good doctrine whatever else it may be, Lord, we acknowledge that we are so prone to not look unto Jesus. Lord, bless us, we pray, with more faith. Bless us, we pray, with accelerated, effective mortification of our flesh by the work of your Spirit and your Word within us. Grant us, we pray, to have hearts that cry out You are worthy, Lord Jesus Christ. Oh, bless us to be such a people. In Jesus' name.